still cracking up that we've got the kiddos like can you please do the dishes quietly it's like we can't do that there's lots of metal in the sink it's like we're actually talking about the bickering oh we didn't think of that that's gonna be even harder kane it was kane and it was eighty thousand, not fifty thousand. hannibal slaughtered the romans at kane in 216 bc it took a decade for the Romans to rebuild their army and find competent commanders. But in that decade, for all that Hannibal laid waste to the Italian peninsula, he never directly attacked or took the city of Rome. History would be very different if he had. But Cane, Cane is that battle. This week on the Play Ed Podcast, we take a deep dive into Command and Colors Ancients. Join us as we discuss how the game can be used to enhance Roman history and develop emotional management. Welcome to the Play Ed Podcast, where we explore cultivating connections through play. Hello and welcome to the Play Ed Podcast. I'm your host, Laura. And I'm Chris. And we are here today to explore cultivating connections through play. So, last week we gave a broad 50,000 foot view of how we go about uh, deciding what games to bring into a school year, and this year's focus is Roman history, and we had a ton of Roman history oriented games. So today we're going to go dive in deeper and do a much more detailed look at one of those games. Command and Colors Ancients, which is, you want to give a little history of the game for the benefit of our listeners? Yes. Command and Colors Ancients is a board war game. It's designed by Richard Borg, uh, Pat Carivial and Roy Grider. It was published by GMT Games in 2006. It is still in print and very much available right now. And it's based on Borg's Command and Colors systems. Um, the unique part is it's designed to simulate what's called fog of war and the uncertainty encountered on real battlefields. And this is driven through a use of cards. Cards and dice. Cards and dice. And fundamentally it addresses in any sort of tabletop war game where the job is to have different players playing um, uh, opponents in a battle. It's really easy when you can see the entire battlefield and see the ideal situation to see the way the battle ought to have gone out. And that usually leaves you with the question, well, why didn't it happen that way in history? Why didn't they do this thing that's perfectly obvious? Or you can only see how it went down historically and you don't see any alternative possibilities. Mm -hmm. And both are obstacles, whether you're trying to understand the strategy or understand what happened and whether or not something different could have happened. So very quickly, there are plenty of how to plays, really excellent ones online. Um, it's, it's a very well supported and popular game. It's been one of GMT's bestsellers for a while. Um, so it's very well supported in the board game community. And as I said, plenty of YouTube, uh, 
stuff. There's, I believe, a Vassal module. I'll have to verify that, but I think there's a Vassal module if you want to play online. If there is one, I'll include a link to it, and I'll also have links in the show notes to some of the better uh, playthroughs. It's one of the ones that's got, because it's been around over 10 years, there's lots of assistance. Oh, good lord, that has been over 10 years since they published it. Over 10 years. It just seems like I got my first copy yesterday. Yeah. So it's it's been around long enough that there have been some really excellent uh, guides to play that have come out, which does make it easy. But giving you a sort of broad overview. So you have a, um, a rectangular board, uh, and the board has a hex grid on it. And there are some terrain tiles if the scenario calls for terrain. You choose a specific scenario to play out of the scenario booklet. Um, and a scenario might be the Battle of Lake Trasimenus or the Battle of Cane or the Battle of Sama. Um, those are three particular battles in Roman history that come in the first set. So if you just buy the core box, um, there are cards that are used, they're called command cards that are used by the player to, um, order the troops to do certain things. There are dice that help resolve the actual combat. The dice are icon-driven rather than being mathematically driven in terms of you don't have the the cube numbered one through six the way a sort of standard six-sided die is. Um, there's a pair of crossed swords. There's a flag. Um, there's a helmet. Uh, there's a green circle, a red square, and a, a blue, blue triangle, triangle. Um, which all uh, the, the the rules go into what those mean in different combat situations. There's some player aid cards, a reference sheets, so that you can quickly look that up. Um, but essentially, each uh, player is allowed a certain number of command cards in their hand each turn. Um, and you, uh, play through and those cards allow you to order troops to advance or retreat or attack, um, and different types of units There are mounted units, there are light infantry, there's medium and heavy infantry, there's special units. And the units are represented by wooden blocks. So if you've seen illustrations in books or maybe on educational lecture video programs where they lay out a battlefield and you have these rectangular colored blocks with lines through them or X's over them that that indicate different types of units lined up in formation, Command and Colors material components evoke that. You have these wonderful wooden blocks that you set up on this hex grid. There's a picture provided in each scenario description that shows you where to put where the starting position for all the troops are, where to put down terrain tiles if there are any. Those also come in the box. And it gives you a, a brief overview of the historical background of the scenario. Um, it tells you how many command cards and who goes first in each scenario, um, what the conditions of victory are, and if there are any special rules, like is a particular river that's on the board fordable or impassable? Do certain events um, cause some of the units to function differently? Um, does a particular leader who's assigned to the army, let's say you have Scipio Africanus with the Romans, or Hannibal with the Carthaginians, um, do they offer some kind of extra benefit to the units they're attached to over and above the normal rules of the game? Mm -hmm. um, the, the rule book itself is very clearly illustrated. Lots of good stuff online. Um, and then you can kind of pick a scenario. And once you've got a handle on the rules and the gameplay, you can play through a scenario in 45 minutes to an hour. 
Um, I've had some go longer, but in general, it averages about 45 minutes to an hour. It's not uncommon for some of our older kids, by which I mean the ones who are kind of middle school and high school age. They'll sit down, they'll play through, and then they'll swap sides just like they do when they play chess. That The chess club they go to and the way they play chess around the house, one side's white, one side's black. At the end of that game, regardless of who wins or loses, they swap colors, and then they play again. Uh, a lot of our kids will do that. They'll One side's Carthaginian, the other side's Roman, they play through. Um, and then when they're, that battle, that scenario is done, they'll play the exact same scenario again. And they'll, but they'll swap who's the Romans and who's the Carthaginians. Mm -hmm. um, and what you'll find is that no two battles play out the same, even with the same setup conditions, because the cards don't allow you to make the same actions every time. And that's where that fog of war simulation comes into play. And then the dice don't fall the same way. And that's where that uncertainty in battle comes mm -hmm. in. And so, as a as a as a an, as an educational tool. Um, CNC Ancients is a is a big part of of how we handle a, a lot of the sort of specific dates and battles type stuff. It's not just that our kids will read about Lake Trasimene or Kane and the, the Colossus at Kane or the Battle of Zama. They'll then play through that scenario and okay, what what was ha we can we can use the, the the pieces on the board to say, okay, what did Hannibal do? What did Scipio do? Etc. This is what historically happened, and then we play through with the cards and the dice, and it doesn't come out that way. Mm -hmm. So that probably provides a nice segue into the question: What does the game teach? What and why did we pick it? Yes. So, I think that. There's two different areas where games can teach you. One of them is content, and the other is skills. Yeah. So content knowledge would include kind of what happened when, who were the personalities involved. So Romans and Carthaginians fought at Lake Trasimenus in Italy in 217 BC. Which leads to the natural question, why? Well, in order to understand that, there's a very, very kind of brief praise about the immediate preceding aftermath and who commanded and what was the outcome of the battle historically and the setup and the consequences of the battle are kind of where history happens the battle itself is important as just sort of a marker um a, a turning point in the in the 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 course it's very easy when reading history in a book to get the sense that for example the conquests of Alexander the Great were inevitable, and he just kind of rolls over everything from um, northern Greece today, Macedonia, and, and all the way over to India. And, you know, he takes over what we would call Iraq and Iran and Turkey and uh, the Punjab and India, and it just kind of happened and it was inevitable. But when you go back and you look at the actual events that took place, the political posturing, the military decisions, the victor the victory in battle, the avoided fights, the pacification of um Bactria and Sogdiana in in the, the upper Iranian plateau and what we would now call Afghanistan. Um places like the Helmand province where the United States has had troops committed for almost twenty years now, mm -hmm. he pacified in two years. Alexander did. How? Why? What was different? You can start having those conversations once you have some of the content knowledge. And CNC Ancients is one of the tools we can use so that that factoid about 
uh, a particular battle at a particular date between a couple of different factions becomes more of an exercise in experimenting and cementing that content knowledge in the heads of our children so that we can have conversations about, well, why did this happen? Why were the, the Romans uh, facing off against the Carthaginians at Lake Trasimene in 217 BC? And so it can work both ways. You can have that opportunity that you're reading about it, whether you're reading through it in a... Uh, textbook or a living book or an encyclopedia and this gives you that opportunity to say okay so that battle that we had let's let's go a little deeper in because it basically said they fought off stood against these guys and this party won let's go in a little further and find out who was there and why and you can start to get a better sense of how did this city move from being a city to ruling a peninsula to ruling an empire and what drove those different things. And that's why studying those battles becomes important because it's the battles that Rome ends up in in various times that has them growing their territory. And it wasn't inevitable. Right. There are several places where things could have gone differently and they could have faded back into obscurity like so many other regional kingdoms. And all of their local neighbors, uh, the Samnites, the... Um, uh, um... Uh, the Pisantines, the um, uh, the Etruscans. The yeah. Etruscans are really a great example of that because they were very dominant. They were in the same area. There's a lot of archaeological evidence that suggests the Romans were at some point ruled by them that supports some of the early Roman legends, but not quite the early Ro way the early Roman legends portray it um, with the early kings of Rome. But the Etruscans were basically lost and forgotten uh, under the onslaught of Rome. Also, you start to understand there were huge setbacks. There was um, uh, one of the battles the Romans fought against the, the uh, Carthaginians. They lost 50,000 troops in three hours. They had, they, had, they had all of their troops that were at that time armed and available slaughtered on a battlefield because their generals were incompetent. Because Roman generals, particularly in the Republic, were chosen by a political process, not by military prowess. And yet within, I think it's five to ten years, they had rebuilt an army and were ready to go back to war. And despite losing their entire army, the city of Rome wasn't taken. Because a siege was never laid. And so you look at these things and you, if you just read in a history book, well, you know, the Romans ended up going to war with the Carthaginians and they won the Punic Wars and then they um, conquered Greece and, you know, all of a sudden there's a Roman Empire and it gets covered in two or three paragraphs. You miss the nuance. But if you're just looking at a, a list of dates and battles and maybe even the names of, of the, the leaders of the combatants, even that can be pretty boring, but once you're there having to make those decisions, face those challenges, and using the fog of war as affected by CNC ancients, you may not be able to replay that battle, but can you still get to the same end? Mm -hmm. And that makes it more memorable. And that becomes a key point that history is, uh, the, the, the study of history has a several points, but being able to remember key characters, key battles, key important events 
is what history is. And if you're trying to remember how did Rome grow and you want to give a summary, you point out they started as a city. They had fights with their neighbors over borders. One of those borders was the Carthaginians who had started coming up across the Mediterranean. Because the Carthaginians were in conflict with Magna Graeca, the Greek settlements that included Sicily, Sardinia, Corsica, and And what we would now call the southern half of Italy. From just south of Rome, down to include Naples and the heel and the boot of the of the peninsula. And so being able to remember the names of those significant battles and have something that makes them memorable to right. you, the history is more interesting and it sticks better. And then you can sit there and understand and make correlations and connections when you get into later parts of history and you can say, oh, wow, this this figure here... He reminds me of Alexander the Great, or he reminds me of Julius Caesar, or he reminds me of Mark Antony. And you can look and you can say there's similarities in character in the generalship. There's similarities in importance in the battle and how it affected the war. And as I just alluded to, you can also make comparisons with more modern things. The fact is Alexander the Great rolled over what we would now call Iran and Afghanistan. And it took him about two years to pacify those areas. And bring those peoples into alliance where they weren't constantly in, in conflict with him. And from there he launched, through the basically the Khyber Pass, he launched his invasion of the Punjab, which would now be Pakistan and parts of India. The United States, which is equivalent to the Macedonian army of its era, it is the most technologically advanced, well-armed and well-equipped army on the face of the planet, We've been fighting police actions in Helmand province and the areas around Kabul and the Afghanistan plateau. We've been there since the early 2000s, 2002, 2003. It's 2019 and we aren't anywhere close to pacifying it. Now, were Alexander's methods different? Absolutely. Were there technological considerations? Absolutely. But those discussions can be had fruitfully. The fact that when I was in high school, we had a war in Iraq, and then by the time I got out of college and into grad school, we were again having a war in Iraq, and that you've got this area that is a crossroads, it's the same earth, the same land, the same water, the same geographic features, and a lot of the same peoples with the same influences that have been in constant conflict going back to even before recorded history. And apropos to the Command and Colors set, which covers Roman Carthage, uh, if you're studying modern history and looking at, say, the Second World War, and you wonder why on earth are we having battles in Africa, and you realize that the Italians and North Africa have had this connection for over 2,000 years. Even down into Ethiopia and what we would today call the Sudan. Mm Mm-hmm. And so there was still interests there, and they were interests that hadn't been, that weren't merely part of the modern era. There had been conflicts and relationships between those cities for millennia. And these go back to the time the pyramids were built, to before the pyramids were built. Um, So before we get off kind of on a tangent uh, about, you know, peoples being a lot more mobile historically than we tend to think they were. Um, content knowledge would include geography. It would include history, both uh, events and personalities. And it includes wider things like um, 
trade and its influence, defeats and victories. Um, uh, if if a if a country is defeated by one foe, another neighbor may opportunistically invade. Um, and all of a sudden, a kingdom disappears from the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rome basically woke up and found itself with an empire, and then it took another 200 years for its political system, built around a, an almost Greek idea of the polis, but not quite, to, you could call it mature, or you could call it devolve, into the kind of autocracy that we identify with the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. So next up, I do want to talk about skills development. I did want to give. One, you have another content piece. Yeah, I do have another content. So Excellent. The core game is focused primarily on the conflict between Rome and Carthage, but there are several expansions, many of which are focused on areas of Roman history. Now, the thing I like about Command and Colors Ancients is that when they say ancients, they mean ancients, not just one civilization um, in, in it, and its conflicts. The first expansion, Greece and the Eastern Kingdoms, is primarily dealing with Greek battles, but because the Greeks did at one point battle the Romans, that does figure into Roman history. So Greeks and the Eastern Kingdoms would include things like the conquests of Alexander, the conflict among the Greeks and the Persians, um, but also the later Roman conflicts with the Parthians mm-hmm. can be played out using... Um, some of the scenarios and the pieces found in Expansion 1, Greece and the Eastern Kingdoms. Expansion 2, Rome and the Barbarians, I believe is dealing with their Northern European um, conflicts for the Mostly most part. the Gauls, the Germans. Um, it's been a while since I pulled Rome and the Barbarians out, but it, it tends to be a lot of the, the later Roman Empire conflicts. Uh, Expansion 3, the Roman Civil Wars... Um, is a very important one, and it's one of the wars that frequently kind of gets lost in the shuffle of Roman history. I usually see it summarized in three sentences. Yes, and it's a very important game because if you're asking the all-important question, how did a republic become an empire, you have to look at two things. How on earth did they gain all of those other territories under their control? And then you have to ask, why did the political situation change and the roman civil wars are a huge aspect of that um expansion number four imperial rome deals with a lot of the roman conflicts um of the early to middle and even late imperial period uh and so it builds on that that expansion one greece and the eastern kingdoms for some of those conflicts um, as well as the barbarians for um, some of the later Roman Empire, fall of the Western Empire type activity. Expansion number five, Epic Ancients. So that doesn't... All right. there The the Epic Ancients Expansion 5 allows you to turn the game from two-player game into a six-player game, where instead of each player controlling one army, and each army has a left, right, and center... You have three players on each side playing an army, mm-hmm. and each player takes the left, the right, or the center of the army, the way a lot of historical commanders divided up, where you have three separate commanders. And so you lay out three boards, and you use pretty much all the pieces that you have, and the scenarios are bigger. And so this would be something to consider that if you happen to have a lot of older children, if you have a high school co-op, um, 
this small group small group you want a mixture of adults and older teens playing this the the epic ancients expansion would be a really really good addition yes um and then finally uh, expansion six the spartan army um that one is definitely more greek focused that one particularly drills into the peloponnesian war and the conflicts immediately surrounding it, both before and after, like at, like Athens' disastrous Syracuse and expedi- expedition. Oh yeah, <laughs> um, which which completely upends the the course of the Peloponnesian War. Athens was winning until the Spartan until the Sicilian expedition, um, and in the attempt to to capture Syracuse, their army was wiped out and their fleet was wiped out, and they found themselves essentially on the losing end of the war mm-hmm. for the for the ensuing couple of years. So you've got the opportunity to cover a whole number of periods in history in as much or as little detail as you want, because you can play one or two scenarios, or you can decide to go in-depth into a period and play through all of them. And GMT has just started releasing CNC Medieval, which they started with some Byzantine, some Eastern Roman Empire conflicts against the Parthians. Um, I haven't had a chance to play through those, although we've 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 got a copy. Um, moving forward in time, there's Command and Colors Napoleonics, which modifies the system in order to account for the kind of organized um, firearms-based... But mechanically is working on the same principle of using command cards and dice to deal with fog of war and simulate that fact that you have imperfect information. Which, which is- does lead to skills. What kind of skills are developed by all of these games, anything in the CNC series... And the first thing that I would think of is that the understanding that information is imperfect is a huge, huge learning point that the biggest mistake you have when you when you look at a battlefield is it's very easy to think it could only go one way. And you forget that you're not seeing that battlefield from a nice overhead view with neat blocks arranged. It's a very nice abstraction from a gameplay perspective, but the reality is that any battlefield commander has got a whole bunch of things that are obscuring their knowledge of what's occurring. And that commander also isn't in the comfort of a probably air-conditioned suburban home or classroom with drinks and food at hand. Um, and... So there's there's material differences between the conditions in which the actual commanders had to make their decisions. And particularly in the ancient world, those commanders were usually on foot or horseback, typically on horseback for visibility, with their troops in the front lines. You know, Alexander leads from the front. Julius Caesar leads from the front. Mm-hmm. They're in the thick of the battle, and they had scars from every major and most of the minor engagements their armies fought in. Mm-hmm. And once you can take that understanding of fog of war and the role that it plays in the game, and you can sort of step back and talk about it from a slightly from once you've played through the scenario, you can start applying it to other areas and say, are there other places in life where you have to make decisions and you don't have perfect information? And the answer, of course, is yes, all the time. Yes. And so learning to deal with the fact that you can't get caught in analysis paralysis, that you have to make a decision before you have perfect information, which may not even be possible to have. Um, that and learning to deal with making the best decision you can under the circumstances. And so, for example, the command cards, you might have four or five or six in your hand based on 
um, the terms of the game. And you draw one and you play one, but you may not have the one you want to play. You may need to, you may want to order the troops, the medium troops on your right wing to attack, but all you've got is cavalry charge or, you know, have your center line advance. Well, then you can't, in Command and Colors, you can't then have your right wing advance. You have to work with the command cards that you have. Um, some are really, really powerful. Some of them, it's kind of like, man, I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose this. But you still learn to play through. And that's another point, is that another thing you can learn is perseverance. Um, the game is not lost or won until you make your last play. Yes, until all of the victory banners for one side or the other are accumulated. I've had um, battles with uh, my kids, and midway through it looks like I'm winning and they end up winning. Midway through, it looks like they're winning, and I and and I end up winning. That ebb and flow that that everyone I've talked to who's been in real combat, everyone I know who's studied military history um, at the professional level, all of them stress that's one of the hallmarks of battle and what military education was trying to get at. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, I have to apply those lessons in my day-to-day job, whether I'm working in IT or I'm working in finance or I'm managing a project. I have imperfect knowledge. It can look like the project is doomed and everybody's dead set against me, and all of a sudden the tables are turned. Or a client is like, you know, this is going great, and then something happens and none of their none of their people are available to work on the project anymore. And six months later, they want to know why it's not going anywhere. So these are real-world skills that you're going to develop and your children are develop and can be honed through playing a board game that, again, it's very quick playing once you know the rules. You can play through most of the scenarios in about an hour um, and get that repetition of dealing with the uncertainty, making the best decision under the circumstances, reviewing those historical facts and the personalities Persevering and pushing through till the end and recognizing that you don't know that you've lost until you've made your last play. Correct. Um, uh, However, in contrast to the perseverance, there's also the opportunity to learn about winning at too high a cost. Yes, Um, the Pyrrhic victory. And the Pyrrhic victory and that understanding that sometimes you spend too much to win is a very important lesson to learn because it's it's a... a relative of the sunk cost fallacy. Um, and this was actually something we were discussing just this morning, was that emotionally, when we put a lot of time or effort into something, um, or we're in what we would call too deep, it's very hard to pull out from something. And playing through these battles, you have the opportunity to, to look and say, I might be able to win this battle, but I'm going to win it with nothing left. Yeah. And that's a good place to look and you can stop and say, and again, apply it to wider life. I might be able to pass this class with an A, but I will end up with D's in everything else that I do. And so you cut your losses, you take the B or even the high C in order to make sure you get passing marks or better in all of your other classes. Uh, And learning that that aspect of you have to look and say, what is the cost of pushing through 
what is the victory condition and is the victory worth what I spent for it? And planning backwards from that victory condition. You know, command and colors, there may be a different number of victory banners that are needed to win a given scenario. But for the most part, the rules on earning a victory banner are pretty much the same for both sides, regardless of the scenario you're playing. Mm -hmm. So you know what you need to do to win going in. The question is, how do you work with the cards you have and the dice results you get in order to control your opponent's actions sufficiently that you secure those victory banners before your opponent does? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's actually a good bit of life and business and that, that ends up being like that, for better or for worse. Um, and so being able to practice that, again, in a very low-cost environment, the game is relatively inexpensive as some things go. I mean, I have friends who do miniatures ancients battles. They spend thousands of dollars on metal miniatures and hundreds of hours painting them and basing them so they can move them around their sand tables. And it's really cool. And I, I love my friends who that that's their thing. And I love hanging out with them and playing those games. But it's not practical for us in our house with our family and the financial constraints we operate under to for me to buy a Roman army and a Carthaginian army and a um, and a Spartan army and an Athenian army and and where would we put the sand table? I mean, I, we can barely find room for for a card table in the house right now. So the, having a dedicated sand table set up where you know I just march my troops up and down the. The field and all. You say sand table, and I've got this image of the fact that we still have a five-year-old in the house. Oh, well, the sand would end up everywhere except in the table, and the metal minis we would be finding in, like, crevices around the house for the next, you know, ten years. Yeah. Um, this allows you to have that same experience at a much lower cost, all things considered. Yes, yes. And, and so, like, troop strength is represented by the number of blocks on the board. So, you know, you have a unit that has four blocks. As it takes losses, you remove blocks. Sometimes that degrades their ability to fight. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, there are rules that force units to retreat. Not every fight is going to result in the complete obliteration of a given military unit. Mm-hmm. Um, some liberties are taken. It's not as detailed as, as you know, a, a Caesar at Elysia or... Um, um, you know, even like uh, some of the Great Battles of History series that, that GMT has published, uh, The Conquests of Alexander, which we also have, um, that, that go into a lot more minute detail in different kinds of troop strengths and movement rates. Mm-hmm. This is very, very approachable. It's a little more complex than kind of your average family board game, but it's not such a, 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 a hill to cross or a chasm to cross Good Lord, if I keep my analogy straight, we'd be doing much better this afternoon. Um, it's it's not such a chasm to cross that all of a sudden you're dealing with, with you know, uh, a hyper-detailed Avalon Hill game from the 1970s where mm-hmm. you've got thousands of chits. Or like the SPI um, uh, War of the Ring based on, on uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings books. Um, great games. But talk about time-consuming. You need... You need a huge amount of space. You need older players who have nothing to do for hours on end. 8, 10, 12, 16, 24 hours at a stretch. 
just to play through, and then you've got thousands of little pieces that are easy to lose. That's not Command and Colors Ancients. The the pieces are are easy enough for our four and five year old to manipulate. Um, they're they're representative rather than precise, but they give you a really really good window into the challenges of dealing with these situations in a memorable way. So. We've been talking a little bit about some of those skills, and I think that ends up being a really good transition into what are some of the ways that you can keep this in the fun zone. Because if you, if I recall right, the first couple of times you played, you did not have fun. No, no. I, 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 it took me a while to warm to this game. I, I wanted to love Command and Colors. I loved the production values. I loved spending an hour and a half, two hours, putting the stickers on each of the wooden blocks. There is a little assembly required. Um, but that made the, the cost of the game an order of magnitude smaller than it otherwise would be had they pre-printed all the blocks. Um, it's a lot easier to print up new sticker sheets uh, from, from from their perspective if, if the print run is wrong than to have a bunch of wooden or plastic pieces reissued. Uh, the wooden blocks are really high quality, but no, I did not enjoy it the first few times. I found the, the rule book a bit puzzling. Um, I was frustrated that I couldn't just move all my units. I was frustrated that I had no real control over how an engagement turned out. And I had played a lot of other war games where, you know, maybe you have movement points and you expend a certain number of points to move the troops you want into the position you want. The problem is, in all of those cases, you're working with perfect knowledge. You know where your opponent's battle lines are. You know where yours are. You know the terrain features. And then you're making decisions from the abstraction level of a player of a game. Mm-hmm. And the real genius in this CNC system, the real genius at work in, in Richard Borg's design uh, is that using the cards and the number of cards you have available to create the effect of fog of war where you can't always just order your right flank to charge and your left flank cavalry to sweep in and do a kind of pincer movement and and cause the center to collapse or something like that. Mm -hmm. You can't do that unless you have the cards to do that. That's a lot closer to well, why did that commander just do that stupid thing? Well, he did, yeah. historically. And it might be because you had the wrong commander there, or that commander got taken out and his second-in-command was nowhere near as brilliant. So what happened? What changed for me? One, I reached out to friends of mine who I knew loved the game, uh, one of whom was in California, uh, and when he was in town visiting a few years ago, uh, I brought my copy of CNC Ancients up with him, and we set it up. And we we didn't even play through a full scenario. Like we just set up a couple of the units. It's like, okay, so what do I do? He's like, well, you use one of the cards. I'm like, well, if I can't do what I want to do, he's like, well, if you don't have a card to do it, you can't do it. That that's the whole point. I was like, oh, so the whole thing I'm frustrated about is a feature, not a bug. He's like, yes. yes. Like, oh, light bulb moment goes off. Then I started looking online. I found some some videos and some tutorials. And then I just started playing through scenarios. First, I would just kind of play against myself in a solitaire way. My oldest son was interested in playing. His first experiences were also disappointing. He wanted to move the pieces when he wanted to move them and how he wanted to move them. And that 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 
not being able to do so because of the cards, and then not having your plans play out the way you expect them because of the way the dice fall in combat, mm-hmm. those two... Once you kind of get over those hurdles of expectation, the game really does play fairly quickly and very cleanly. And I think that's one of the key points is to recognize that that's probably an expectation point you're going to run into. It's very easy when you're commanding all your troops to sit there and think, I can make all my troops do what you want. But the reality is that commanding an army is a lot more like a group project. Oh, good lord. It's definitely like a group project. And the fact is, is that even if you've got a general who is brilliant... You have to have all of your team players. He's still got to herd cats. He's still got to herd cats. And so what you're learning is that you may have an idea of how you want things to go, but sometimes you've got everyone on board and sometimes the hand that you get handed is not the best. So and learning to help them with managing that expectation yes. is a key point. Knowing the rules, Playing through some of the scenarios, not so much to get to the victory conditions, but just to figure out what happens. Um, you know, w- some of the rules don't get invoked until they get invoked. Like there, there was, there was, um, um, there was one. My my oldest and I were just talking about a few weeks ago, um, and we realized we we'd been adjudicating it completely wrong the whole time. The last several years, we've been playing this game. We've, <laughs> we've we have misadjudicated how a particular situation is handled. That happens to us. <laughs> and it's clearly, it's clear in the rules. As, yeah, it's like you with Monster Trap a yeah. few weeks ago where you just, you just missed that sentence. Uh, my, my D&D game on Friday night, um, we ended up having a, like a 20-minute discussion about, about movement rules. Yeah. And something that I've done one way for 30 years is apparently wrong. <laughs> and it's clearly spelled out in the rules. It's like in the rule book on page 25 in this paragraph, it clearly says that the way I've been doing it is wrong. And the way the guy who was running the game has been doing it for the same 30-year period of time is correct. Yeah. Sometimes the rule books aren't that clear. C&C's rule books are really good. And it's helping to get un- that understanding that it's a feature that you can't always do what you want. Yes, and that what you do, what happens when when the 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 units clash, the dice are going to dictate things are going to go pear shaped. So you can learn that no plan survives first contact intact. Yeah. Period. Absolutely, you will not play this game for any length of time and come away with the impression that the way you envision the battle going is ever how the battle will go. And so, one of the key points in life is learning that, and that. Your expectations are never going to be what reality is and how to temper them and adjust to reality and what you've planned, not coming out the way you planned. It's like, that's a huge learning moment. Learning moments can sometimes be painful. So right. expect them. That's It's part of the game. It's something to work through and talk through and replay. And because the game plays fast enough, you do have the opportunity once you understand the rules that you can play again and see if things turned out differently. Because a different hand of cards could be a completely different battle. Different hand of cards, different dice, different decisions. So, the other thing I'd say is that the important thing, like many games, is make sure that you're working with the right age group. This is not a game I'd play with my five-year-old. For all that he... He likes to move the pieces. Yes, loves moving the pieces. But the cards require an ability to read um, and do some abstract thinking. And while the dice are icon-driven, the reference cards are not. So it's, it's, I'll let them move around, um, but for the, really you need a middle school age child or older, um, 
the, the, I would think they you would want children who were beyond just kind of moving chess pieces around, that they can actually do some strategy. Maybe they know some openings. Um, they can play a middle and end game um, and hold their own with others. That that kind of level of maturity. Um, and, and who hopefully don't go to pieces if things don't go their way. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe you use this game to help kind of work on on learning to... Lose gracefully, learning to not give up until it's over and one side or the other has this, the, the, the victory banners they need for that scenario. And then you know what? We turn around, we play again. Um, I would think middle school, high school, um, older teens, 20-somethings, uh, and, and then on up from there um, should all be able to learn the rules pretty quickly, play very effectively once they understand them. Uh, and it would be a good fit for those. Yeah. So I think from where where we're standing, that's probably a pretty good summary of how this would fit into where we're going with our school year. We're definitely planning to play this with our older children, especially since we're studying this. And I think it's going to be one of the key games that we're going to be playing. Yeah. Um, and, and our olders will actually play it against each other. Like, I, we don't necessarily have to pull out and say, hey, kids, let's play this game today. It's, you know, our, our oldest or or one of our middle schools, they'll challenge each other. Hey, let's play CNC Ancients. Let's play CNC Napoleonics. Um, they, they've tended towards Ancients lately because Napoleonics really does add a lot more complication. But it's a complications appropriate to the Napoleonic era of warfare mm-hmm. uh, in the, the 18th and 19th century. So, but as far as, as this is definitely a, a critical component in how we help historical events and people come alive in a memorable way for our kids and get a good handle on the geography and the, the hows and the whys and the wheres um, that ultimately created the world that we live in today. Yeah. So... We hope that you have enjoyed today's discussion. All of the games that we mentioned uh, can be found in the show notes, and I will be making a point to include some of the um, how-to videos that we have found. Uh, But now we would love to hear from you. Is there a war game that you have played that you'd be interested in hearing more about or to to recommend to us? Um, Have you played CNC Ancients, and do you have any stories to tell about that, of playing it with your kids, playing it with your friends? Yes. So you can write to us at playedpod at gmail.com. You can uh, find us on Instagram and Twitter at playedpod. We'd love to interact with you. Also, we have a Facebook page at playedpodcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. Have a great one. Take care. Bye. possible cold open that I just recorded while you were out, so Great. we'll have lots of options in the editing. Fantastic. So, so I I was reading through the scenario booklet, and I did remember correctly, almost. Cane was the battle where Rome had its whole army wiped out. Aha. Uh-huh. So. But it was 80,000 in three hours.
Ah. Not 50,000. I see. They were led by two consuls, two proconsuls, and pretty much the one in charge was a completely incompetent twit. Aha. So, the core game... Core game. That's where we were talking. Core game. Yes, pardon me. 